Welcome to Easter Sunday. What a joy it is for me to be with you this morning as I prepared and as I've prayed over what to preach and just thinking about today. And I just kept coming back to the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundational piece, along with the crucifixion, the foundational piece of our faith. The entire belief structure of Christianity, of of what we believe would come crashing down without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, he says that without the resurrection, our faith would be worthless or in vain and futile, and we would still be in our sins. Well, We're going to be talking about this morning the reality of the resurrection, and as I was thinking about this pillar that, that the resurrection is, I couldn't help but think of my youth and, and going on youth trips and, and playing that, that game Jenga. If you know Jenga, the different blocks, and you, you build a tower, and as each individual person tries to pull out a block, you try to keep the, the tower from falling. Well, one thing you never did as you played Jenga, if you've ever played it, is you never pull out the foundation stones. Because if you do, the tower collapses. And that's the resurrection when it comes to us as Christians. It's, it's one of the foundation stones of our faith. Well, when you think about the resurrection, it was and is a reality. It did take place and it was a real event. Now, for unbelievers, the resurrection of Christ is it's a quaint story they hear, and they hear it most around Easter as they're going about their business and as they're, they're hunting for eggs and they're celebrating the Easter money. They hear Christians talk about the resurrection. And now they don't understand this event. They don't understand that this event is the most important event in human history. I'd say the most important event in the history of the universe Well, the main reason they can't understand is because mankind in general lives in rebellion and sin against God. Colossians 1.21 says that mankind is alienated from God in mind. Indeed, they're, they're enemies of God because they love their sin, they love the darkness, and they hate the light. Romans says that men and women suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, For the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, Paul says that mankind cannot understand or accept spiritual truth apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. They think it's foolishness. But what this world needs every day, not just during a crisis, What the world needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a gospel, it's good news that is built on the foundation of the resurrection. The good news is is that God is, is reconciling men and women to Himself through Jesus Christ. But without the reality of the resurrection, there would be no hope. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 26. We're going to be looking at the the reality of the resurrection. Now we're going to be looking at the resurrection and the power of the gospel. We're going to be looking at the resurrection and the message of the gospel. 
and the resurrection and the hope of the gospel. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn with me in your Bibles if you're not already there. And we'll look at the first 11 verses to start with and then we'll continue onward. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you are also saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, we preach and so you believed. So the, the first thing, the first point we're going to look at this morning is the, the resurrection and the power of the gospel in verses 1 and 2. So Paul starts out, and when dealing with these Corinthians, you got to remember that the Corinthian church was a, was a, was a terrible church in the New Testament era. There were, there were divisions, and there were lawsuits, and there was animosity between each other. There was pride and selfishness and sexual immorality, a, a misuse of spiritual gifts and the gifts of tongues. There was, there, was, uh, there was incest. There was misunderstanding of the order of service. There, there was all sorts of things going on in this church. Now, Paul writes this because they had a misconception about the resurrection that they would take or that would happen for them individually in the future. Now, they accepted Jesus Christ's resurrection, but what they didn't understand or, or what they had come to accept because of an influence of Greek philosophical thought was that there would be no individual resurrection for them as Christians. They believed that this life was all there was, that their spiritual state that they lived in was, in fact, their resurrection, their spiritual resurrection. And so Paul's writing this to, to correct their misconception. And in this glorious chapter, you could call this the, the resurrection chapter of the Bible, in chapter 15, Paul in detail lays out the resurrection and he lays out the results of that resurrection, the, the reality of that resurrection of Jesus Christ and its, and its influence and its effects on you and as them as believers. So Paul, first of all, lays out the power of the gospel. And in verse 1, he reminds them, he says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. You're talking about the gospel, the, the good news. And it's interesting here in the Greek, it's the gospel because there is only one gospel. There's only one way of salvation, and it's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It is the good news. Euangelion in the Greek, it's a, it's a term for victory. We have victory over sin and Satan in this world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when he looks at this and he lays out the gospel and the, the power of the gospel in their lives, he deals with their past, their present, and their future. And brethren, it, the gospel deals with your past, your present, and your future. 
He says that it's the gospel which I preach to you in the past tense. Paul proclaimed the whole truth. Paul, in fact, says in 1 Corinthians 4 that he was their, their spiritual father. In Acts 18, you can read about how Paul comes into Corinth and, and he preaches the gospel to them. Romans 10, 17 says that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Brethren, you, you heard the gospel at some time, either through a, a pastor, a preacher, a friend, a family member, a Sunday school teacher. The gospel was preached to you. Paul continues and says, not only is it preached to you, but he, you also stand. Sorry, you received it. I apologize. He said you received it. Received it has to do with, with welcoming in the gospel. It's more than just hearing. Because so often you can proclaim the gospel and people hear, but are they truly believing? And that's what Paul means here. He says, I preached to you and, and you received it. You, you welcomed in Jesus Christ into your hearts. You believe and you, you trusted for Him alone as salvation, for salvation. Brethren, you've been preached to. You've been, the gospel has been claimed to you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you've received Him. That's your past. That's these believers' past. And he continues and he says, well, let's look at your present. He said, not only did I preach it to you and you receive it, but he said, in which you stand. The idea of stand, it's a, it's a perfect tense. And if Jordan was here in front, I'd get him to expound the perfect tense to you. So you have any questions, give him a call. So the perfect tense is it's completed action with ongoing results. So the idea is you've taken your stand for Jesus Christ and the results of that, that standing go on and on and on. It's continual loyalty to Jesus Christ. That's loyalty to the gospel message. And that message is built on the foundation of the resurrection. And so he says, your, your past, as I preach, you've received the gospel, you presently stand in the gospel. It reminds me of Martin Luther. When called before Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms, he was called to retract his writings and recant his teachings. And his response is, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. See, we stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all that we have for salvation. Anything outside the gospel is, is trying to obtain righteousness or right standing before God by our own works, our own efforts, our own pride. But not only does Paul deal with their past, their present, but he also deals with their future. And he says, by which also you are saved. Or a better way to say it is, you are being saved. So you have a present aspect to salvation, and you have a future aspect of salvation. In other words, salvation is effective. It's effective in Christ's death. You are saved. You are forgiven of your sins. You have been justified before the Lord. And it's progressive in that the salvation that you experience, that justification, goes on and on and on in progressive sanctification. To put it in another way, you're saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And you will be saved from the presence of sin. So Paul, when he talks about the power of the gospel, it's the resurrection that is that pillar of the gospel. 
that has caused these believers or these Corinthians and you as well to become believers. But he said there's also gospel faithfulness involved. He says, verse 2, by which you also are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. The idea is continued faithfulness to the Scriptures. That continued faithfulness to the Scriptures demonstrates the reality of your faith. You know, there are some that lack faith. There's some that have believed in vain. There are some believers, or sorry, excuse me, there are some people that are among the saints. There's goats among the sheep. Maybe they even have or seem to have orthodox belief for a while, and many of you know people like this, and then they decide to reject Christ and they, they walk away. And what they demonstrate is they, they didn't have real faith to start with. In fact, if you look at the parable of the soils in, in Matthew 13, and you look at how the, the sower sows the seed among the hearts of men, there's really only a 25% success rate. There are those that hear and that, that they seem to follow Christ for a while, and then they, they fall away. Right? You, you can have just have intellectual knowledge. James talks about this in James chapter 2. He says, you believe, you do well, but the demons believe. You can have the right understanding of Jesus Christ and still not submit yourself to His Lordship. The demons have really orthodox theology. They know who God is, they know who Christ is, they know what He's done. They were there for a long time. They know exactly who Jesus is. But yet they will not submit to Him. They will not bow the knee. Brethren, it's because of the resurrection that you are a believer. It is a fundamental pillar in the gospel that you believed. Your belief in the gospel has separated you from this world as individuals. The Word of God saves you from your sin. The gospel unites us together with other believers, gathering us together in a local church. You, we are all members of the same body of Christ, and we need each other. God saves us through the gospel message proclaimed, and He gathers us together like leaves on the pile. As a church, New Community Church seems to be a a Bible-driven church, a Word-centered church, because it is the Word, the preaching, the reading, the hearing that that, that through the Holy Spirit has life-changing power. New Community Church, we exist as a, a platform for the Word of God, and we exist as evidence of the gospel's changing power. There would not be a church and there would not be a gospel if not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul has laid out the resurrection, the power of the gospel. He moves on to the gospel message in verses 3 through 11. Paul says there's basic tenets of the Christian faith and he says in verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance, of primary importance, These are the the basic principles that you you have to understand in order to get anything else. And he says there's two basic pillars of the Christian faith. The first pillar, he says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You see, what we have here is atonement for sins through the death of Jesus Christ. And he's clear that that Christ died. He died on a cross for our sins, for your sins. In fact, he says that he died for our sins. You could could actually say that he died on on behalf of us. 
This is atonement. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In fact, Jesus' sixth saying on the cross, it is finished, which is one word in the Greek. He said it right before he died. What he means when he says it is finished, he's talking about the completed work. He's talking about he had made atonement for sins. He fulfilled the work that the Father had given him. All the prophecies concerning the Messiah's redempted work in the Old Testament had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God's justice was satisfied, the ransom was paid, and the wages of sin were settled forever for all of God's people. Nothing can be added to Christ's substitutionary work. And he says, according to the Scriptures, it points to the Old Testament as a whole. And then he says, the other pillar is that, and then he, he was raised... Sorry, and then he was buried, verse 4, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, Paul brings in, he was buried because, remember, he's, he's emphasizing with the Corinthians that, that there was actually a real dead corpse in the ground. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't a fainting spell. It wasn't a coma. Jesus Christ died. But the other pillar is that you have the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He was raised, it's a, it's a perfect tense again, in the sense that he was raised, point in time, and the effects still go on. In other words, he was raised and he still lives. God raised him from the dead. He, he vindicated his claim that he was the Son of God. He proves his victory over death, Satan, and the world. God accepted Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. And without a resurrection, Jesus Christ couldn't return in glory because He still would be in the grave. Once again, it's according to the Scriptures. So you have the power of the gospel, you have the message of the gospel. It reminds me of a survey that I read not too long ago from the BBC. They were doing a survey of people claiming to be Christians or Christians in the United Kingdom, and they found that 25% of those surveyed did not believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I can tell you this, brethren, and anyone listening, that if you do not believe in the resurrection, do not believe in the pillars of the Christian faith, as Paul has outlined here, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and His bodily resurrection, you are not a Christian. That's what makes us Christians. It's Christ's work on the cross and His subsequent resurrection. No matter what you call yourself, it doesn't make it true. You can stand in a garage, but it will not make you a car. You must hold to the resurrection. And Paul even keeps going just so the Corinthians will understand that it's not just him talking. He says there's, there's witnesses to this resurrected Lord. He says, and, and in fact, ladies, just so you understand, he's not skipping over the account of the fact that, that, that ladies actually saw Jesus first. You've got to remember, Paul's dealing with authority here. Because the Corinthians were questioning Paul's authority. They were questioning his apostleship. They were questioning his, his message. Paul defends himself in 1 Corinthians 4. And then he spends multiple chapters defending himself in 2 Corinthians. Okay? So it's not that he's, he's ignoring Jesus' visits to the ladies, but he's dealing with the authority and the gospel message preached and proclaimed by the leaders in the church. And he says, Cephas, 
first. Paul, that's what Paul, that's what, sorry, that's what Paul calls Peter. Peter, Cephas, same word. He appeared to Cephas, and then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to 500 disciples, 500 brethren in verse 6 that would included men and women. And then he appeared to, to James, who wrote the epistle of James. Then he appealed to all the apostles. And then finally, he appeared to Paul. Paul was the, was the last person to see the resurrected Lord. And Paul makes it even, Paul even says, look, it's a humble thing for him. He said, verse 9, I'm the, the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is humbled by God's choice and he even acknowledges it's by God's grace. But he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And then in verse 11, he, Paul sums up that section and he says, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. He's saying the apostolic message is consistent. The gospel message is consistent. It's based on the, the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross and His bodily resurrection three days later. That is the, the message of the gospel. So Paul has dealt with the hope, sorry, the, the power of the gospel. He's dealt with the, the message of the gospel. But he also deals with the resurrection, and the, the hope of the gospel. Let's look at verse 12, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we even found, or we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So here we have a, the hope and pitied existence of those that, that doubt the individual resurrection. In other words, they, they doubt that they themselves as Christians will be resurrected to a new body, a glorified body with Jesus Christ. He says, look, if, you, if you're doubting this, and Paul throws it out and he says, look, Christ's resurrection and your resurrection are tied together. In verses 13 through 19, he says, There's no resurrection of the dead. Not even Christ has been raised. And he said, If Christ hasn't been raised, and you can see the logic in this, then, then we're, our preaching and, and our faith are in vain or futile. Right? We're, we're believing a lie. And that's what Paul continues and he says in verse 15. He says, We're even found to be false witnesses. And in the Old Testament, if you're a false prophet of God... Right? You're witnessing to, to, to say that God is something or did something that He didn't do. You're a false prophet. You were to be stoned. And that's what Paul says. Look, if, if, we're, if Christ hasn't been risen or hasn't risen from the dead, then we are false witnesses of God. We're liars. We're testifying that God said something and He did something that it's not true. 
then he continues again in verse 16 and he repeats himself. And he says, if the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. And he says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Right? Your faith is worthless because if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he is not who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the Son of God. The resurrection vindicates his testimony that he was who he claimed to be. But not only is your, your faith worthless, but you're still in the sins. How, how pitiful a state is that is, is that you, you thought you had a way for atonement to be made, but yet if he wasn't raised, there's no atonement. There's no forgiveness of sins. There's no satisfaction of God's wrath that you deserve. And it gets even sadder. Paul says, and then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. The word fallen asleep there in in the Greek, it just literally means people who have died. We're not talking about soul sleep as the Seventh-day Adventists proclaim. We don't just die and and our souls lay in kind of a a comatose or or a, a suspended state with our body in the ground. No, no. Away from the body is present with the Lord. But he said, what a sad state that if you've believed in Jesus Christ and you died in that belief and he hasn't been raised from the dead, guess what? There's no forgiveness of sins and you are lost forever. That's what he says and that's what he means by they have perished. What a sad state. I love what John MacArthur says in his commentary. He says that if Jesus Christ hasn't died or hasn't been raised, He said, instead of Hebrews chapter 11 being the hall of the faithful, it would be the hall of the foolish. But Paul even continues, he says, look, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be pitied. What does Paul mean by that? All the suffering that Paul had, had been through, shipwrecked and stoned and run out of town and cursed, left for dead. All the apostles that were, that were crucified or stoned or, or, or killed in the forsake of Jesus' name, they are above all of us to be pitied. They, they gave their lives as a waste if Christ was not raised. So Paul is, is drawing this argument and he's just trying to shake the Corinthians up and say, look, there will be a future resurrection from the dead for you individually because that resurrection is based off of Christ's resurrection. See, the Corinthians doubted this and they, they thought they were, they were in some kind of spiritual state of resurrection. But because Christ was raised, you can be sure that you will be raised also. That brings us to the last section, verses 20 through 26. Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by man, a man, came death, and by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, And after that, those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is 
death. So what Paul says here as he continues, and, and he's still talking about how Christ's resurrection is interconnected with our future hope, our future resurrection ourselves as Christians. And he says, but Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Right? The first fruits. When you talk about a harvest, you get the first fruits. In fact, there's a, there's a festival of first fruits. In Leviticus, the Jews, the Israelites would bring their first fruits to the Lord as a, as, a, as a sacrifice, as an offering, an appreciation for what's to come. Now, I have a lemon tree in my yard. When I moved in, it was in a pitiful state. It was basically one or two branches and a few leaves, and I set to work on it, and I fertilized it, and I've been watering it, and now it's this big, massive tree. Well, a few weeks ago, I started getting a, a few pieces of, of fruit. And now when I first saw him, I'm thinking, well, you know, this is great. I've got a few pieces. I wasn't really expecting anything because of the state that it was in. These are, these are, these are going to be nice. But I noticed a couple of days ago that I'm getting buds all over the tree. I'm going to have lots and lots more fruit. You see, the, that first few pieces was, was the first fruits. It was an indicator of the bountiful harvest to come. And that's the point here that Paul's making is, is that Christ is the first fruits from the dead. He's the, he's the, he's the first one to come. The harvest is coming. Our, our future is secure. Our hope is secure. Paul continues and he says, For since a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection. Because in Adam, because of Adam's disobedience from God, his rebellion, we all are born into sin. We can't escape it. Right? It's, it's what separates us. Sin always separates. Sin separates. Sin kills. Sin always kills. Because of sin, we're, we're separated from God. We, we, we go through physical death because of sin. And ultimately, if not not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we go through eternal death, eternal separation from God for all eternity. But because of Adam's disobedience, we're separated. But Paul says because of Christ's obedience, because of His work that was confirmed through the resurrection, He is life to all of us who believe. He is life abundantly to us now as we're being spiritually renewed, but He's resurrected life. For us, new glorified bodies that we can, we can be in God's presence for all eternity. That's our hope. It's a hope based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul continues and he says, not only is, a, is, it, is it a hope, like begets like, but he said there's a proper order. He said, first there's Christ who rose from the dead. He's the first fruits. Right? And then he said, there are those who are alive at Christ's coming. So first of all, you have the first fruits, then you have those who are Christ that are His at His coming. What he's talking about there, he's talking about, he's talking about those that are Christians. He's talking about those that have, have died from Pentecost onward and those that will be alive at the rapture when Christ returns and gathers His church to Himself. At that point, we'll receive a glorified, a resurrected body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So, brethren, we're, we're going to rise first. That's our hope. Either Christ comes back and, and we're alive and we're, we're, we're raptured to meet Him in the air, or we, we die and our, our spirits are united with Him in heaven as we wait for His return. And at His return, we're reunited with our, our bodies in a new glorified state, a body that, that has personality, that has sex, but is able to withstand the glorified presence of our Lord for all eternity. So you have the resurrection of the church. And, and then at the end of the tribulation period, as, as, as we, the glorified saints, enjoy Christ's presence out of the wrath of God poured upon this earth during that tribulation period, the seven years, at the end of that, there will be a resurrection of tribulation saints, those who came to the Lord through the seven-year period. And there will be a resurrection of Old Testament saints. And these Tribulation saints, these Old Testament saints, and all the saints from from Pentecost till whenever the rapture is will all rule and reign with Jesus Christ during the 1,000 years known as the Millennial Kingdom. When Jesus Christ Himself will come and He will rule and He will reign from this earth. He will reign from Jerusalem. And Paul says that, look, those who are Christ is coming, verse 24, and then comes the end. When He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet, and the last enemy will be abolished as death. So at the end of the millennial reign, when Christ has, has victory over every enemy, Satan, right, the Antichrist, the false prophet, Right? All unbelievers, all unrighteous, they've all been thrown into the lake of fire. He hands over the kingdom to the Father. And then you have the eternal state, a new heavens and a new earth. What a hope, brethren. What a hope based on the resurrection. And then that final time when He hands over the kingdom to the Father, there will be no more death. The victory that was won at the cross is consummated at that point. There's no more physical death and there is no more eternal death. For anybody that is not, for, for anyone that is a believer in Jesus Christ, we are forever in his presence. There's no more separation. Brethren, this is the, the gospel. This is the gospel of hope that we believe in. It's all based on Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. He wasn't an accepted sacrifice. He rose from the, from the dead. He is the blessed Son of God. See, His resurrection is the first fruits of the great harvest to come. That's our hope. This life is not our hope. That would be pitiful. Our hope is that we will be resurrected with glorified bodies for eternity with our loving Lord and Savior. Rather, not long after I moved to Australia, I received a, in the mail a ticket for speeding. Apparently, six kilometers over is a big deal, but I digress. What I what I was interesting for me was that what appeared on the ticket itself, and it's a word that I've never seen outside of theological circles or theological discussions. And in fact, it gives you Aussies 
a leg up in understanding this theological term versus us in America who don't use this term. Because on my ticket, it was called an expiation notice. Right? So you guys have that, that cultural context to understand that theological term. Because expiation is to take away guilt through payment of a penalty or an offering. Literally, the act of expiating means to make atonement for your law-breaking. Jesus Christ was your atonement for breaking God's law for all of your sins. You see, it's a legal term that removes your guilt. And you're justified. Colossians 2.14 says that Christ took your individual expiation notice of sins and He nailed it to His cross and He made atonement for you in your place. Then He triumphed over Satan and death through His resurrection from the dead. Brethren, Christ is our hope. And as Peter says, He is our living hope. He's your expiation. He's your atonement. Brethren, today we celebrate Christ's victory. We celebrate His triumph over Satan, over sin, over death. Brethren, He has risen. He has risen indeed. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we... We thank You for sending Your Son to die on a cross for our sins, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Father, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. There is no other gospel but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that for those that are listening that don't know You as their Lord and Savior, that they would repent of their sins. They would understand they're separated from You by their sinful state and they, they need a Savior desperately. And that salvation is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Pray that You'd work in their hearts, that You'd convict them of sin, lead them to, to a right relationship reconciled with You. For those of us that, that know you and love you as Lord, I pray that this day and, and as we go forth each and every day, we remember your resurrection. We remember your sacrifice and we remember that, that you rose from the grave on the third day and then you ascended to the Father, retaking your glory that was yours before the world began. For you came to earth as a baby. Lord, we thank You for saving us, for calling us, for gathering us together in Your church, as Your church. Lord, we praise You and we glorify You now. In Jesus' name, amen.